at that time the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh including Mizpah and Gilead and from there he led an army against the Ammonites and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord <clears throat> he said if you give me victory over the Ammonites I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering <clears> to <throat> Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites <clears throat> and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 20 towns from Aror to an area near Mineth and as far away as, as Abel Karamim. In this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites. <clears throat> when Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out, you have completely destroyed me. You brought disaster on me, for I have made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. And she said, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed. For the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But you first let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months, because I will die a virgin. You may go, Jephthah said. And he sent her away for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept, because she would never have children. When she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made, and she died a virgin. So it has become a custom in Israel for young Israelite women to go away for four days each year to lament the fate of Jephthah's daughter. This is the word of the Lord. It is the word of the Lord, and it is a heavy word, isn't it? Uh, it's quite a... You read that, it just sort of hits you in the guts. Uh, what benefit is it to us today to have this in our Bibles? Well, I hope that in a little while you'll see why God has given it to us and how it is that we can grow by understanding it more. Let me pray to help us. Loving Father, thank you for your word, and we ask now that as we come to it, you would help us understand this this tragic passage of the Bible and that you'd help us know what it means for us today so that we might know you more and love you more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you love a good bargain. Um, you know, when I go to get something from the shops at Kayama or Shell Harbour, I don't normally expect to negotiate the price. So the other day when I bought a nice new tie for Joanne's wedding, uh, I didn't go in there and sort of say, okay, well, let's start low. And well, you know, it says $60. I'll start with 20 and see where it goes to. Uh, it didn't quite work that way. But you do that when you buy a house. Now, it's a bit more important buying a house than buying a tie. So you think, you know, it says 500,000 on the ticket on the, on the house, and you then say, well, I'll, let's go and offer them 400. And you need this funny little dance which ends up somewhere between 400 and 500, and away you go. Um, that, that's more the case when you're buying a house. Um, when we were in the Middle East last year, pretty much everything was bought that way. And so you'd go into the markets and you'd find something you really liked and it'd say, you know, 500 shekels. And you'd say, 500, you're joking, 200, mate. And then eventually you'd get to some sort of fine point between them, about 
350 or whatever. Uh, Mandy got very, very good at this. We've got this beautiful tablecloth that I think was something like 400 shekels and she got for about 120 shekels. It was awesome. Unfortunately, we didn't quite learn that lesson until a bit later on. Um, and uh, we also were very eager to get all of our souvenir shopping out of the way early on. So we bought a lot of stuff, probably a lot more expensive than we really needed to because we didn't quite understand. And they were very happy to see us, that, that first shop. They just thought we were lovely customers. Of course, we were, you crazy Westerners. You had no idea what you were doing. Uh, but when you get a good bargain, you love it, don't you? And uh, we, we do like to negotiate when it works well. Negotiation's important, particularly when relationships fail. Negotiation matters when relationships fail. Uh, if you have two countries that look like they're headed to war, what do they do? They bring out negotiators so that they can perhaps avert conflict. Maybe there is a married couple who's going through a really hard time and they've got to work out how they can salvage the marriage. Then they bring in a negotiator. They don't call them negotiators, they call them counsellors or, or mediators. But again, it's that opportunity to try and hear from each other what it is that is causing the problem and how they might be able to fix it. Today, as we come to the Bible, we see a man by the name of Jephthah who is very, very good at negotiation. He is ruthless. He is cunning and, generally speaking, successful when he does his negotiations. But he's also a man of tragedy. He's a man whose insecurities and arrogance ultimately lead to his downfall. How will we benefit from studying Jephthah? Well, we'll learn more about how it is that we should live as God's people and how it is that God, what God is actually like, what his character is like as he deals with people who continue to fail him so spectacularly. And that's what we see again today. We see our passage begins with the word again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. It's like, really? They served the images of Baal and Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia, they abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. Again, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know it just goes around and around and around. And so the cycle of salvation and sin has come around again. Everything's going well, they desert God, things go badly, they cry out to God, he sends them a judge, he saves them, and then they neglect him and it goes around and around and around. But this time it's even worse, because not only do they serve the gods Baal and Ashtoreth, which they've done before, they basically bow down to every single god they can find. It's kind of like, get me a book on comparative religion and we'll divvy it up amongst us, let's go for it. And they might perhaps think it'll be okay. Will the Lord, what will the Lord do in this? Well, we read in verse 7 that the Lord burned with anger against Israel and he turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. Uh, these bad guys are going to be the ones who will make God's people's life horrible. And they were in distress for 18 years. And then finally, verse 10, they cried out to the Lord for help, saying, We have sinned against you. Because we have abandoned you as our God and have served the images of Baal. They recognized their sin and they repented to the Lord saying, sorry. What's the Lord going to do this time? Is he going to say, all right, I forgive you. Well, this is what he says. He reminds them of the many, many times that he saved you. We say, okay, well, remember what I saved you then, and then, and then, and then. 
And then he says in verse 13 to 14, Yet you have abandoned me and served other gods, so I will not rescue you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. You know, you've sort of flirted with all these other gods that you think are better than me. Well, good luck to you. Let those gods sort out your messy life because I am up to here with it. In the end, God was sick of their rebellion. He was sick of their rebellion. You know, I, I think as I read this, I think, you idiots. Why do you keep on rebelling against God like that? Why do you keep on moving away from him? Don't you get the pattern? Is there nobody who remembered the past who could tell you this would happen again? The point is, though, that they're really not different to us in a lot of ways, are they? You know, we can easily lose our contentment with the things that God has done for us and given us. And we want to have more. You know, I know that buying new stuff or visiting new places or dining on fine food or all this, I know that that's not going to bring me happiness. But it doesn't stop me being tempted to pursue them. In the end, we need to be content with God's Provisions. We must be content with God's provisions. Uh, this week in scripture class uh, with the year three and four kids, I was asking them to share prayer points. And so I wrote up on the board, thanks, and then ask, and got them to tell me things we can pray for. And somebody was moaning and whinging about, oh, you know, we're here in year three, we don't have any rights or something like that or whatever it was and, and, and talking about how hard it is to be so young and everything. <laughs> and, oh, I'd really like a new Xbox or can I have some AirPods or something like that. And I said, you know, one of the things you need to do, we need to pray, not for new fancy stuff, we actually need to pray to be content. Does anyone know what content means? And they sort of looked at each other and said, is that kind of the stuff that's in a container? I said, no, that's content, uh, not content. And then we did a little bit of an English lesson and explained to them that contentment is about being happy with what you've got and being thankful to God. And when you're not content, don't just ask for new stuff, be thankful for what you've got. <laughs> you see, that is what God's people forgot. They forgot to be content with what God had given them. We forget that, don't we? We think that if we can just get that new car smell or some more stamps in our passport or lovely new shoes, whatever it is that you inserted in the blank, you think that will bring great joy and you find that it doesn't last. And in fact, we as a nation are far more prosperous than we've ever been. 30, 40 years ago, do you think we would have imagined we would have been this prosperous in terms of the world? It's extraordinary. And so obviously we are happier than ever before, right? Wrong. The boom industry is dealing with people's depression and anxiety. We've got more. We've got more sadness. Maybe we can understand why the Israelites failed again to truly love God. Because we, like them, fall into times when we are not really content. Well, anyway, they realise that God's not so happy with them and it's, maybe it's just getting a bit awkward. So now they then have an even bigger sorry to God and then they say, verse 16, that we read that the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. Well, that's a good move. And what did God do? He was grieved by their misery. They repented and we read that the Lord's response was grief. 
at their misery. He saw their suffering and sadness and he himself was sad. You know, it's another reminder that, that when we sin, God's not just like, oh, okay, well, that's an X on this exam. Not competent, competent, not competent. His heart is breaking when we sin. He is moved when we disobey him. It's funny because he at one stage can be perfectly sovereign and unmoved, but at the same time, he can be passionate and moved by us. How do you reconcile those two? I think it's hard to get our heads around it, but they're both true in the Bible right here. The point is that we hurt God's feelings when we sin. And when we feel the pain that comes from our sin, God feels that pain as well. He empathises with us. This is what our God is like. What a beautiful God we serve. He's not some unmoved mover. He's not a God who just expects us to serve him, but he's one who loves us. Well, in response to God feeling so sad at what they've done, we realise that he says nothing, nothing at all. And at this point, God's people prepare for war. They're in a place called Gilead, and it seems that they didn't have a leader to lead them. You need a leader if you're going to go to war, and so they try and have a recruitment drive with a bit of a competition, maybe a reality TV sort of thing. You know, verse 18, the leaders of Gilead said to each other, whoever attacks the Ammonites first will become ruler over all the people of Gilead. Whoever wins survivor will become the new king. And so they have this competition, and what happens? Well, we hit the pause button, and like these reality TV shows, we now go to a cameo of a particular contestant. And we move to this guy called Jephthah. We read that Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior, verse 1. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also had several sons, and when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. Get lost, Jephthah. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. Okay, you got Gilead. He's got a wife, and they've got kids, sons. And Gilead also goes and sees a prostitute who has a son called Jephthah, who's our man in the story. The sons of the wife say to Jephthah, the son of the prostitute, we don't want to have anything to do with you and we do not want you to share in the will at all. And so go away, leave Gilead, go as far away as you possibly can. And so, verse 3, Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, which is a long, long way away to the north. And soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. Uh, this guy is a great warrior. He's also had a horrible family and he's been expelled to another part of the world. Jephthah, we could summarise as being a warrior with a tragic upbringing. A tragic upbringing. I don't know if he longed to have those Christmas days when all the family were together. Ah, I suspect he may well not have and never wanted to see them ever again. Now, why do we need to know about this? Well, we switch back to the action, verse 6. The elders said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. Hang on a second. So the people from Gilead who told him to go away are now saying, Hey, we hear you're pretty good with the sword and management skills are 
quite good. Would you mind coming down and just leading us and protecting us and saving us? It's like Jephthah says to the elders, let me get this straight. I like that translation. Let me get this straight. If I come with you and the Lord gives me victory over the Ammonites, will you really make me ruler over all the people? The Lord is our witness, the elders replied. We promise to do whatever you say. We cross our heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, put my hand on a stack of Bibles sort of stuff. They're, they are promising with a deep oath. We promise before the Lord that we will do this. Because because Jephthah, he's a cunning, he, he, he's a guy who has, this is not his first rodeo, okay? He, he understands that, that things with negotiations, people talk is cheap. And he says, you need to promise me that you're really, really going to do this because I do not trust you, and rightly so. And so he then negotiates with the elders of Gilead. He says, you need to solemnly vow that this is the case before all the people. And so he negotiates with them, and so then he agrees to lead them and to save them. You know, there's a bit of a parallel here. It's, it's, I read this in the commentary by Barry Webb on the book of Judges. He says that the relationship between the people of Gilead and Jephthah is a little bit like the relationship of the people of Israel with God. See, what did the people of Jephthah, uh, people of Gilead do to Jephthah? They said, we hate you, go away. What did the people of Israel say? We hate you, God, go away. And so what do they do to God? They say, please come and save me. And God's says nothing and he says to the people of Gilead uh, says to, the, to Jephthah please come and save me but Jephthah says yes okay let's negotiate and he does eventually do that but in all of this we see that God is silent and God is not silent for us you, what does God think of you what do you think that God thinks? you can read in the Bible and know exactly what he thinks of you he is not silent Whereas at that time he was. It's like, lips are sealed. I'm not going to tell you anything about what I'm thinking because you are in the bad books. My heart is breaking and you're in the bad books. Well, what happens next? Well, as the newly crowned ruler Jephthah begins to have this time of battle with the opposition king, but before he actually gets the war of, of, of uh, the swords and everything out, he brings out the war of words. He starts some negotiation. Verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammon, one king, another king, asking, why have you come out to fight against my land? So rather than just have war, he says, let's talk about this. And we see at this moment that there is a negotiation. Jephthah negotiates with the king of Ammon. There's a time of negotiation. The conversation goes back and forth a while. I'll skip over a few bits until finally verse 19. Jephthah, we, we read here that then Israel sent messages to King Sihon of the Amorites who ruled from Heshbon asking for permission to cross through this, his land to get to the destination. But King Sihon didn't trust Israel to pass through his land and instead he mobilized his army at Jahaz and attacked him. Basically Jephthah says that was what happened back then. We just wanted to have a, a visa to go through your land. And what did you do? You bashed us up. We tried to bash us up. And so you see that then, verse 23, was the Lord, the God of Israel, who took the land from the Amorites and gave it to Israel. Why then should we give it back to you? He defended us and he was the one who gave it to us in the end. And by the way, he goes on to say, we've been here for 300 years and if you had such a big problem, why did you wait so long to come and talk to us? 
And then verse 27, he closes by saying, Therefore, I have not sinned against you. Rather, you have wronged me by attacking me. Let the Lord, who is judge, decide today which of us is right, Israel or Ammon. This is a really good point. He's like saying the Lord gave us the land and because we believe the Lord is real, we reckon we will win this battle. And so let's go then. And what happens is in all of this, Jephthah acknowledges that the Lord rules. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? He says, I believe that the Lord really is in control and that he will be the one who will defend us in this battle. It's the same sort of thing that Gideon finally worked out when he had his 33,000 soldiers which got whittled down to 10,000 soldiers which got whittled down to 300 who drank water in a funny way. You know, they were, that was it. And yet the Lord gave them the victory. Maybe something happened that Jephthah thought, you know, I reckon it might be a God thing if we're going to win. It's like, smart guy. He believes that the result of this battle will be because of what God does in life. Now, you believe that as well, don't you? You believe that everything that happens in this world is from the hand of God, that it's all not just one big divine rolling of the dice. Uh, God is sovereign. If you're having a conflict with someone who is your enemy, uh, or you know, you know that God is in control of that. If you're having a conflict with a family member about something, you know, whether a will or some other feud, or a conflict through work, someone owes you money, or maybe the boss is acting immorally or, or something, or, or, or a fight with some sort of bureaucracy where justice just seems impossible. In all these different conflicts, it's not like God says, I can't help you. In every conflict, the Lord is in control. Every conflict. Now, it may be that you lose the battle. Maybe you'll get shafted in business or lose your job or get a raw deal in a family feud. Who knows? But God is sovereign. And whatever happens is in your hand, it is in his hand. And it may well be that you'll lose this, lose this battle and look back and say, Lord, I'm so thankful that that happened. Because though it was hard at the time, I knew you had my back. But ultimately, God is sovereign. And, well, let's see what happens. Verse 28. Well, the king of Ammon paid no attention to Jephthah's message, didn't return his calls or his text, or wouldn't answer the door. You know, it's like not there, not interested. And so negotiation was over. There's no clear winner, except Jephthah recognises that the Lord is Lord. That's a win. You bet it is. Well, finally, the Lord decides to get involved in all of this, and rightly so, because you can see that he's now been acknowledged as the true Lord. And so verse 29, we read that at that time the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mitzpah and Gilead, and from there he led an army against the Ammonites. The good news is the Lord is now with them. The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, comes on Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Jephthah. God is on his side. I don't know how Jephthah felt when the spirit of the Lord descended on him. We're not told what that's like or how it happened or anything like that. But surely he must, must have been conscious of the fact that God was now with him and he's ready for battle and let's go. Let's do this battle thing. The Lord is king and he's with the leader. Let's do it. But then something happens that's a bit unexpected. Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, 
if you give me victory if you give me victory over the Ammonites I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to greet me when I return in triumph I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering for some reason even though he has the spirit in him and he's ready for battle he says oh I feel like I need to negotiate with the Lord Jephthah negotiates with the Lord. He ne- he's the negotiator, this guy, isn't he? he? He kind of feels like he needs to bargain with God to just make totally sure that he's going to get a victory. People do this from time to time, don't they? They're in a plane and suddenly losing altitude and they're terrified for their life and they suddenly say, Lord, if you save me from this plane crash, then I will come to church. And then suddenly the plane resumes altitude and everybody's smiling and think. Okay, I'll go back to church. And then other things like that as well. If you cure my cancer, then I will follow you fully in my life. Or, or if you can just get me through this exam, then I'll, I'll start to say prayers again. Or whatever it is. Why would Jephthah need to negotiate with the Lord at this point? Seems a bit dumb, really. I, w- I wonder if he's feeling the pressure. And maybe he just deep down doesn't believe that God really will be faithful. He's been burnt before. He's had a hard upbringing and he's a pretty toughened, damaged man. And so he goes to what comes naturally. Negotiation. And what is his promise? He says, if I win this battle, I'll kill and burn as a sacrifice whatever comes out the door of the home when I return from battle. You might think he's obviously talking about an animal. I don't know if it was normal for him to come home and then some random sheep comes out at the front door and says, right, right, you'll do, off we go. But it seems that the language here, according to people much smarter than me, it seems that the language he's talking about here is more appropriate to describing a human. It says here, someone who would come out of my house to meet me. Oh, here he comes, let's go out and see him. It seems quite possible that It betrays his pagan roots where he'd be prepared to offer up a human sacrifice in order to win this life and death battle. We're seeing his true colours, really. It's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Anyway, he thinks, I want to shore this up, so I'm going to make the deal. And off he goes, and in verse 33, we realise that God leads his people in a crushing victory. Absolutely nails it. And so with this crushing victory, he returns home and everyone's happy including his daughter. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned home to Mitzpah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. When you read this, what does it, how does it make you feel? Your heart sinks. Oh, this is such a mixed emotion because he's, she's supposed to be so joyful to see her dad, my dad, dad who is now the leader of the people and the army and he has absolutely scored a wonderful victory my dad and i'm going to sing and i'm going to dance and everything like that and jephthah thinks oh his stupid and unnecessary bargain with god has gone horribly wrong and he says verse 35 when he saw her he tore his clothes in anguish Oh, my daughter, he cried out, you have completely destroyed me. 
You've brought disaster on me. For I have made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. He's beside himself with grief. But look at the way he expresses it. Look what you've done to me. I look at this is going to be horrible for me. I'm going to feel so much pain because of you. Would have thought the better response is, oh, this is horrible for you. You're going to die. It's all about him. He blames her for coming out of the room and running there and joining him in this celebration. You've destroyed me, completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me. This guy's so full of himself, he just worries about how it's going to affect him. And he takes no responsibility for his foolish promise. None whatsoever. He can't say sorry to his daughter. He can't say sorry to God. He can't say sorry to anyone. He just says, it's my daughter's fault for running out of the house to greet me. What an idiot. It's horrible when we see this kind of arrogance when people make mistakes, isn't it? Especially when a leader does something wrong and it hurts others and they do not take responsibility for it. This is the kind of failed and flawed leader we see in Jephthah. But the response is quite stunning from his daughter. She said, verse 36, Father, if you've made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you vowed. For the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months because I will die a virgin. The daughter knows that the Lord is real and that a promise to the Lord must be kept. She also realises that it's the Lord that brought the victory in the end, not her father. And so now she will go and spend two months in tears, counting down the days before her life will end abruptly as her father kills her and burns her. Now, if this is the first time you were ever reading this and you'd started the Bible at Genesis and you'd gone all the way through, you might think, hang on, I can think of another time when a father was going to have to sacrifice his child. You think of Abraham and you think of how God says, go and sacrifice your son. And we're thinking, oh, is it going to happen? And then suddenly, and there's a little sheep. It's like, get the sheep right. You're thinking, is this going to happen now? Maybe because the daughter is just so switched on with the Lord that it's all going to work out well. And it's going to be like a Hollywood movie where this suddenly goes from the minor key to the major key. Verse 38, you may go, Jephthah said, and sent her away for two months. And she and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never have children. And when she returned home, her father kept the vow he'd made and she died a virgin. Fairly sparse in details. We don't need details, do we? We know what happened and it's just horrible. It is unimaginable what that two-month period must have been like for that daughter and for the community and for the father. Every day, counting down the days when he would sacrifice his daughter. But in the end, it's because he's an idiot. His insecurity led to his personal disaster. Jephthah's insecurity led to this and it has had such an impact upon the community that it became part of a custom. Verse 39, 
So it has become a custom in Israel for young Israelite women to go away for four days each year to lament the fate of Jephthah's daughter. So what do we learn from all this? Well, we're not going to get to that bit just yet. We've got to look at something really quick first. And that is that there's a new crisis between the tribe of Gilead and another tribe called Ephraim. The Ephraimites were pretty upset that they didn't get called into battle. If I was in Ephraim and they said, look, don't worry, you stay at home, uh, I'd be like, I'm okay with that. But these guys, not okay with that. Uh, Then the people of Ephraim mobilised an army and crossed over the Jordan River to Zaphon and they sent this message to Jephthah. Why didn't you call for us to help you fight against the Ammonites? We would have loved to have helped you. We're going to burn down your house with you in it. Okay. Um, That didn't go so well. They're fighting words. And especially this guy who's burnt his daughter saying, I'm going to burn you. They knew. Them fighting words. And so Jephthah attacks them and he defeats them. And uh, the Ephraimites are defeated and you kind of think that might be the end of it, but it's like, no. Uh, Jephthah is going to make sure the Ephraimites pay and pay and pay for this rudeness. And so we hear a story about a password. Now, you need passwords to log into the internet and stuff like that, but you probably remember that the idea of a password was pre-computers, that if you wanted to go through a checkpoint, they'd say, give us the password, and you'd say, blue cows. Radio, you can go through. Uh, That's what we have here, a situation of a password. But instead of the word, it's actually the accent of the word that will determine whether or not they can pass through unharmed. And so we read here, Jephthah captured the shallow crossings of the Jordan River and whenever a fugitive from Ephraim, the bad guys who wanted to burn him, whenever he tried to go back across them, the men of Gilead would challenge him. Are you a member of the tribe of Ephraim who we really, 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 really hate? They would ask. And if the man said, no, I'm not, (laughs) they would tell him to say this word, S-H-I-B-O-L-E-T-H. If he was from Ephraim, he would say, Sibboleth, not Shibboleth. Because people from Ephraim cannot pronounce the word correctly. Oh, okay. Uh, So what would he do, whether it's Shibboleth or Sibboleth? He'd say, well, no, we don't like you, you're from Ephraim. Uh, Well, no, then he'd take him and kill him at the shallow crossings of the Jordan. You better hope he wasn't from Gilead, but with a speech impediment. (laughs) Anyway, uh, in all, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. It's like, oh, this is heavy, this Bible, this this killing. Anyway, Gilead, the mercenary, when he's picked on, he does not forget. And so we see that at the end of this passage, he he was judge over them and ruled for six years. And in the end, what do we learn from all of this? Well, as Barry Webb notes, insecurity and self-interest are serious character flaws, that's right, which can be exacerbated by experiences of rejection and can be extremely damaging in a leader. Too right. Insecure leaders produce tragic outcomes. We see that in life, don't we? A leader who has to make the really tough calls that will affect other people 
when they are weakened by insecurity, then they may well really harm others. And I think that's what we see in Jephthah here. Sure, he has had a really hard upbringing and he's been toughened as a mercenary. But still, he was deeply insecure. We need leaders who are ready to humbly apologise when they are wrong and to be secure enough in themselves that they will say sorry and seek forgiveness from those they have harmed. We need to be a community that does that as well. When we fail each other, we need to say sorry and genuinely apologise and genuinely bear the results, the consequences of those things that we've done that are wrong. And I pray for strength as your leader here that I will do the same. Pray for me that I will, that I will be secure in the way I lead so I don't act like Jephthah too much. The other thing is we must not bargain with God for his grace. We're not bargaining with God for his grace. Grace is a free gift, cannot be earned. We, can't man- we must not try and manipulate God to bless us and to make our life better. See, Jephthah had the spirit of the Lord descend upon him. Whoa, you beauty. And yet he still felt the need to negotiate. He wanted to do something. He needed to be able to offer a big sacrifice to God, even though God had already said, I'm going to give you that victory by descending on him in the spirit. We must not bargain with God for his favour. We must not try to manipulate him so that he will bless us and make our life better. Our relationship with God is a free gift, totally from him. And everything that happens to us is from his loving hand. We've got to serve him on his own terms, not ours. And we must not negotiate with God. No, negotiate to buy a tablecloth in Israel. Negotiate to buy a house. Negotiate when you're at war or battle or conflict. But don't negotiate with God. And we need to realise also that following the true and living God is not a guarantee for a pleasant and prosperous life on earth. God does guarantee what life's going to be like when you follow him, and that is persecuted. Life on earth is going to be difficult. All we can be guaranteed is that we will have persecutions in this life, but also that in the life to come, blessings beyond imagination. The now and not yet. We are in Christ and have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. But yet we wait for his return when we will experience that fully. And in the meantime, don't bargain with him. Say, yet not my will but yours. This is what we must do as we trust our Lord and what must drive us as we humbly serve him in all we do. Let me pray. Loving Father, as we've seen from your word here, we recognise in this man a flawed leader and we do repent of the times when we have led and not served and when we have done things where we have hurt others and we ask, Heavenly Father, that we would be a community here at Jambrew Anglican that does deeply apologise and does deeply forgive. And we pray, Father, that we would be people who would Take your blessings, whatever they are, and that we would not manipulate you to get more. 
and that you would help us as we go through the guaranteed persecutions of this life to trust in you, knowing that you sustain us and that you rule sovereignly over us and over your world. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, next week, the talk is Saint and Sinner. And it's all about Samson, Samson and Delilah. It's a fascinating story and I hope you can join us next week for that.